Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday evening, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. So I am here today with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing today? Doing great, Nick. Happy to be back on. We have a March Madness tournament finally. Fingers crossed in the next couple days, people are finally appreciating Trey Mann and how good he is. Life's pretty good. Can't complain too much. Yeah, so let's start actually with that NCAA tournament, and obviously Trey Mann is going to be the star of the tournament, but you know, there are obviously some other interesting things happening with this tournament. I think the first thing that sort of stands out to people who more casually follow college basketball is that neither Kentucky nor Duke is on this bracket, which is interesting, but kind of fitting given the seasons that both teams have had. But that's sort of the most basic take. What are your thoughts on sort of the tournament seating outside of the obvious cries from Kentucky and Duke fans about them not making it? I kind of thank God that they didn't make it because they were both (laughs) pretty much a slog to watch this year. I mean, I'm I'm okay not seeing more of either of them this year. Other than that, I I thought Oklahoma State and Cape Cunningham kind of got screwed with that four seed. Um, you know there there were talks of them potentially being a two, and the fact that they may have to go up against Tennessee and Illinois, um, I I don't think is exactly fair. But the tournament never is, and you know I, I if anything I think it'll just rob us of a game or two of. Cade Cunningham, but he'll be in the NBA very shortly. Um, you know, the, I, I thought there were some really interesting matchups. I think Gonzaga is going to cruise through to the Final Four. I think their road looks really easy. Uh, we should get some good Jalen Suggs and Corey Kispert games there. Uh, potentially a Jalen Suggs Evan Mobley matchup in the Elite Eight, I believe, which would be incredible. Um, and then just some fun matchups like Jason Preston versus Virginia, uh, Bones Highland going head to head with Chris Duarte should be a good one. Uh, ho- hopefully Trey Mann continues the hot run that he was having in the SEC tournament, and people you know continue to come around on him because I, th- I think he's one of the best shot creators in in this draft, and I'm pretty sure he has the best step back in the country right now um i I think baylor's backcourt's gonna just feast um in their bracket especially if north carolina wins against wisconsin um i I think davion mitchell and jared butler will eat that young backcourt of caleb love and rj davis alive um but i overall I'm, i'm just excited that we have the tournament back and hopefully hopefully everything goes smoothly and we get to the tournament and we get through it and we've you know have a new national champion that tennessee oklahoma state presumed matchup in the second round is going to be really interesting especially for draft purposes but you mentioned this that gonzaga run through the western bracket is kind of hilariously easy but i guess they earned it with the way they played this season it's going to be very sad for anyone in the northwestern part of the united states if they lose somehow before they reach the final four because that would be a huge disappointment given their side of the bracket yeah and it it always seems like every year that the top overall seed never truly has the easiest road and this year they are had you know heads and tails above you know heads and shoulders above everyone else and they are the clear number one seed and they have the easiest path. So it makes 
sense. And then, you know, Michigan on the other end is the fourth number one seed, and their road is brutal. Um, as a Michigan fan, I'm already getting anxiety for having to watch those games, um, especially without Isaiah Livers, and I'm just already preparing myself for Cam Thomas to go off for 35 points against them in the second round. So I want to talk about draft philosophy, and specifically draft philosophy around big men, because this is going to be our deep dive onto the bigs of this draft. And the place I wanted to start is sort of an obvious discussion point, given the current direction of the NBA, which is just when is it worth it to take a big man in the top portion of the draft, whether that be the lottery or in the case of one of the players we're about to discuss, probably in the top three picks of this upcoming draft. And I don't know, on the one hand, center is by far the most important defensive position in the modern NBA, and there are some sort of power forward sized guys who can cover for terrible defensive centers. But, you know, the flip side of that is that you really need an excellent defender at the center spot. On the other hand, the replacement level for seven footers has probably never been higher in the history of the NBA. So someone has to be a really exceptional talent to be a big man drafted, I think, in the top five of any NBA draft. But maybe I'm going a little too far out on the limb here. What are your thoughts on sort of philosophy around drafting big men, especially in the higher portions of the first round? So for me to take a center, you know, with a top five pick, they, they kind of have to be one of these generational talents who's more than just, you know, your your traditional center they have to be of the anthony davis carl anthony towns uh you know now nikola Jokic, joel Embiid type mold where they are guys that you can legitimately build your franchise around and that's so rare and you know in this draft i i do think evan mobley is that other than that i mean like when i'm just scrolling through you know my, my current big board i i have mobley at two then i have kai jones who I think is kind of a power forward center hybrid at nine. And then after that, I don't have another center until Daron Sharp at 29. And I I don't want to spend my middle of the first round pick on a utility big man. And the way that the NBA has kind of morphed and the way the team construction has kind of gone regarding centers is either you have that generational big that you can truly build a franchise around who can do a bit of everything on both ends of the floor or you have a utility guy it's kind of turned into the almost the running back position in the nfl where it's either you have the star or you do it by committee and i'm not spending i don't think i'm spending a first round pick on someone who i'm going to throw in a rotation with you know, one or two or three other guys. So I would much rather spend a late second on one of these athletic rim runners and rim protectors, or even just give a guy, you know, a summer league contract and go from there. Because I I, I think those athletic utility big men are a lot more available than these, you know, I I would rather have a versatile two-way wing over a utility big man almost any day of the week. Well, let's talk about the one player who does have that real superstar upside in Evan Mobley. And 
just like the rest of the top five in this class, he's clearly an exceptional prospect. You have him at number two. I would have him at number three, honestly, behind Jalen Suggs. And the thing with Mobley is he has a really great handle for his size and really solid offensive talent overall. He's basically above average or better at everything except post-ups, which is hilarious given that he's a seven-footer. And on the defensive end, he's super mobile at, again, the most important defensive position in the modern NBA. But the reason that I would very easily have Jalen Suggs above him is just because the one thing that he needs to do more consistently is be aggressive because if you're going to take a big man at that spot as you said he needs to be a franchise cornerstone and right now Evan Mobley seems like he's going to be more of a secondary or tertiary guy on sort of a championship team offensively and you know he showed a lot more aggression especially in their conference play in USC's conference play but if he's not going to be that kind of Anthony Davis level offensive threat then you know you're getting a better version of Miles Turner maybe which is not someone I'd want to take with the second overall pick in the draft and you know that's a little unfair to Mobley but rich man's Miles Turner again is not someone you want to take in the top five especially in the top five of this absolutely loaded draft class the passivity that he's kind of shown during the regular season I I think is fair to a point but I I tend to attribute a lot of that to him just constantly making the right basketball decision and a lot of the time that's not him you know going to work on the block or taking a guy one-on-one sometimes he leans into that a little too much and and you especially in some situations where you just like want him to take it over where you're like Mobley like you're by far the best guy in this court what are you doing just attack this guy um and he's almost a little too eager to make the quote-unquote you know right basketball play so I, I that's what I tend to give more of the credit to for him being passive but I besides that I there's really not much I dislike in his game um I excellent rebounder just he moves like a wing incredible shot blocker with his length um I and he obviously needs to get stronger but and I I know the Chris Bosch comparison has been out there I I get vibes of vibes of that I also get Rashid Wallace vibes from Evan Mobley um and I think his shot his outside shot will eventually translate it wasn't really there this season at USC but the form's good, the touch is good, the the deep mid-range jumper's good, so he doesn't need to be, you know, Carl Anthony Towns from out there, but he does need to get more comfortable with shooting from out there, and I, I think that aspect of his game will eventually come, and then once he's able to do that, it's just going to open up so many other things in his game, because he, like you said, he can take guys off the dribble, um, he can finish around rim contests with his extension, um, and he, and he's just a really fluid player who's rarely going to make the wrong decision or the wrong play. And that decision-making is crucial to point out, I think, because honestly, the less that a big man sort of has to learn at the NBA level, the more ready they're going to be in years two and three to be really high-impact players. I mean, the vast majority of rookies are 
terrible on the defensive end and Mobley has a chance to be really solid as a rookie on the defensive end but he's also probably going to be way too skinny his first year in the league to really be an effective paint presence it will be really interesting to see sort of where Mobley's at in year three because if he's put on 20 pounds and has gotten up to like 35, 36% from long range and is taking threes from above the break as well as sort of corner threes and, you know, spot up opportunities, then I think, you know, he's got a really great shot to be like an all NBA level talent. But if he doesn't really put it together in those first two years, I'm worried that whatever team takes him at the very top of this draft is going to sort of lose patience with the development process. And that that's fair, um, but I, I I feel like you can kind of say the same same thing about Jalen Suggs and his shot. Sure, that's fair too. So I, I you know the the shot for like for so many of these guys is always the swing skill, and if it's you know if, if it comes along, they could be you know an all star. If it doesn't, they're just gonna be a rotational guy. Um, but I I I don't even think he needs to be. I, I, if he can just reach like Joel Embiid levels of outside shooting, Joel Embiid isn't this incredible outside shooter, but defenders still, for some reason, constantly bite on that slow pump fake, and he just drives past them and bodies them off, you know, on his way to the rim. And now Mobley obviously doesn't have that strength, and that's something he needs to work on, but the way he moves, he has a much quicker first step than Embiid, so, you know, if he can get defenders to just you know, respect his outside shot even a little bit, that, then that that pump fake and, and go is going to be there all day for him. And then he has the skills to, you know, drive and kick or make a little shovel pass to a cutter or, you know, finish over or around a rotating defender. And just to be clear, I think that Evan Mobley is going to be a great NBA player who has a really, really high ceiling. It's just that given how good Jalen Suggs has been and given how obvious, at least to me anyway, Cade Cunningham is as the number one overall pick, it's really picking nits with Evan Mobley to sort of say anything negative about his game because he's had an incredibly impressive freshman season. It's just that I feel like a big man prospect has to be almost perfect to be taken in the top five of the draft. And Mobley's as close as you're likely to get for a college prospect but he's still not all the way there but let's move on to a prospect with a very different sort of game in kai jones out of texas and foul trouble limited his playing time in the conference tourney win over oklahoma state and he's also sort of seen wavering minutes throughout the season for texas which is um interesting i'll put it that way it's a a crime yeah that's i think closer to the actual truth (laughs) but He has shown really dramatic growth from his freshman year, and he has all of the tools, really, that you could want from sort of a modern NBA center. You know, he's started to show signs of being a three-point shooter this year, and I don't think that 39% three-point shooting is really real, but the fact that he's, you know, made that many in his sophomore year at college is still an impressive sign. And you said that you have him at, number nine and I think he's the only other center that really has a chance to go in the lottery but it'll be interesting to sort of see what he does in the NCAA tournament because he is someone that could really push his way into the top six or seven of this draft if he just absolutely goes nuclear in one of Texas's games 
Yeah, if he starts shooting like 45% from three in the tournament, um, it, it wouldn't shock me at all if NBA GMs just lose their minds over him. Um, I, I, I'm a massive Kai Jones fan. I, I have been all year. Just his his two-way versatility, his athleticism, it it's so much fun to watch. Um, I mean, he, he can be a little careless with the ball at times and a little foul-happy, but I mean, the the way he can essentially defend all five positions on the floor is incredible. Um, you know, he's one of the rare big men when he switches on the perimeter. He actually, you know, gets low in a defensive stance where he bends at the knees and not at the hips. Um, he moves his feet well. Even when he gets beat by quicker guys, he has the length and athleticism to recover and contest. Uh, he, he can defend the post. He's a good off-ball defender. Um you know, I, I know some people aren't buying his shot. I, I don't think he'll be that 40% three-point shooter in the NBA. You know, early on, he'll probably be low 30s. But I do expect him to be a, a good or at least reliable, um, you know, catch-and-shoot guy. And he's also proven this year that he can attack closeouts and take guys off the dribble. So he's still pretty raw, but the tools, the foundation that he has and everything that he's shown has been incredibly impressive and just a lot of fun and really paints the picture for this two-way monster that he could be in the NBA. This is also year four or five of high-level organized basketball for him. Yeah. He was a track star when he was younger, if I'm remembering that correctly. So, you know, a lot of big men sort of take a few years to develop in the NBA to sort of figure things out, but the speed with which Kai Jones has picked up the game in, you know, again, his fourth or fifth year of sort of high-level basketball portends well for him, you know, learning quickly and expanding his skill set very quickly in the NBA. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think he played his first varsity game until he was like 17 or 16 or so. I may be off by a year or so on that, but in that range, which, you know, I, I, I feel like every now and then we get stories of these guys and it's like, oh, this athletic freak who oh, he has only been playing basketball for two years and look at what he's done in those two years and then they never pan out into anything. But I feel like Kai Jones has shown so much more production, consistent production in so many different areas on the floor that he is just way ahead of any of those guys that we've mentioned in that similar realm or with like that similar background in the past. And, you know, this is way over the top but you know there have also been people who came from that sort of background of not really playing basketball as a kid and picking it up as a teenager you know that's kind of what happened to Hakeem Olajuwon right you know that's egregious for Kai Jones yes yes but you know there is that sort of upper limit of like you know yes there are a lot of times where these guys sort of come in and they come from other sports and really all they are is athletes that is not Kai Jones at all no and, you know, again, Hakeem is unfair to him. Hakeem is unfair as a draft comp for everyone. Uh, yeah. But it also does, you know, sort of indicate that for the really, really high level guys who come from other sports, you know, it is possible that you can pick up everything that you need in that sort of a time frame. And if you have the athletic tools, you can really make something special happen with it. And and he's definitely proven that he, he has that understanding of the game. Um, I mean, offensively, he his off-ball movement kind of sucks. Um, he'll occasionally cut, but he'll need a lot of guidance and structure um, in that area. But, but his feel defensively um, 
and just his decision making and awareness on that end of the floor it, it it's just just something you don't see from guys who've only played the game for a couple of years so the fact that he's picked that picked up stuff that quickly on that end of the floor uh you know i i feel really confident that the offensive game will come along to match that too so we're going to move from one incredibly unfair draft comparison by me to another incredibly unfair draft comparison <laughs> by me and we're going to talk about scotty barnes and in the last four or five years or so there have been way too many prospects who have been compared to draymond green but Scotty Barnes is one of the few for whom I can sort of see it. I mean, he is an excellent passer for his size, who is versatile on defense, and who has great basketball IQ, but other than passing and running in transition, doesn't really have much of an offensive game, and he can't really shoot. You know, that's pretty similar profile-wise to Draymond Green, and I think Scotty Barnes is one of the few high-level college prospects who could turn into that kind of player, and, you know, as you sort of see with drafts across all sports, and this was something I first sort of started reading about when it came to baseball drafts, but there's sort of a trend where you will see sort of a skill set being valued in the professional leagues. And then, you know, three to five years later, you'll start seeing that kind of skill set popping up more frequently in, you know, underclass players, high school players, college players, etc. You know, where a guy who was 6'8 and really mobile three or four years ago would have been a clear small forward and maybe even a shooting guard prospect. Whereas now that kind of player could, you know, easily be a small ball setter. And again, you know, a Draymond Green comparison is unfair. He's an All-NBA player. He's probably going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. But Scotty Barnes sort of has all the elements of the Draymond package in the defensive versatility, really high basketball IQ, excellent passing skills, no shot. I don't know. Is that unfair? Is that too far? Scotty Barnes... <sighs> No, because I, I I've seen the Draymond comp a lot, um, and I I just I struggle to buy into it. I I don't think he's the same defender that Draymond is, um, and you know m maybe that's unfair from me because you know I'm I'm comparing him to Draymond as a senior at Michigan State compared to you know this kid who's a freshman and playing in a season during a pandemic. So you know apples and walnuts you know you, you can't really <laughs> compare the two um so i love S scotty uh so he's like the ultimate you know what is this prospect of this draft where you see him in the open floor and it's incredible you see him force 10 second violations after a miss which is unheard of um he'll pick up point guards full court and then the next possession, he'll get completely blown past on a drive. Um, I think his off-ball defense is all over the place where he just like randomly roams and loses his guy. I think part of that is due to you know his instruction and how Florida State kind of wants to play him as like this Roman safety who's just out there causing chaos and forcing turnovers. So I, I don't think that's all on him, but then there are times where you can tell that he's supposed to be staying with this guy because he'll do that frantic, you know, triple take to try and find his guy and then scramble to recover. The Rudy Gobert spin cycle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, essentially, or, or the, 
the Anthony Edwards. Oh crap! I've been watching the ball for ten seconds. Where's my guy? I I own I, Scotty Barnes is a su- far superior defender than An- Anthony Edwards, so that's not where I was going with that. But I, I I understand where the comp comes from. I don't think he's quite there defensively yet. It probably comes as he matures and gets older and more experience and all of that. Um, my biggest concern with him is I I just don't know what you do with him in a half court offense. Um, you know, maybe an NBA team will play him on the block a little more or in the dunker spot. Um, and I, I think he, he could be a little more useful there because I, I'm not sure I see him as a primary initiator in transition. Absolutely. Um, you know, laying the clock as a secondary guy. Absolutely. But he's not going to be out there running your offense. So I'm not sure what you can really do with him if his, you know, outside jumper is in the 20%. So that that's my main concern with him. But I mean, he has all these tools that make, you know, that I'm sure are making creative coaches just salivate and, you know, desperately want to get him into their rotation because there there are a lot of things you can do with him. Um, I'm just not smart enough to figure out what they are. Let's talk quickly about some of the other big men who are going to go towards the back half of the first round, starting with Daron Sharp, who you mentioned earlier that you had at 29th on your board. His offensive rebounding numbers have been absolutely ridiculous, and that's a skill that the NBA is sort of trending away from, but Sharp does it at such a crazy level that it's still beneficial even when teams aren't really hunting offensive boards. And he's also a really good passer for his size, and hopefully he'll get more of an opportunity to show that at the next level that he has at North Carolina. But I don't know. You know, the reason that you have him sort of at the back end of the first round, I think, is really just because there are already a lot of players in the NBA who can sort of replicate that skill set. Do you really want to take a guy like that in the back half of the first round? Exactly. I mean, that, that's kind of the the main you know, limitation I have with taking Sharp any higher than the very end of the first or early second, like where, where Mobley and Kai, Kai Jones have these, you know, you can envision their elite ceilings. You know, there's so many guys like Dayron Sharp in the NBA who, who just don't have that ceiling. Um, you know, I, he reminds me a lot of a Tristan, Tr- Tristan Thompson. Um, and his, his motor is incredible, great rebounder, really smart passer. Um, and the, the guy is just going to work his butt off every, every minute he's on the floor, um, which is super important and a lot of guys don't do. Um, but being much more than an energy big man, um, I'm not sure he reaches that. I, I don't think he's a good shooter. Um, I, I think he's pretty limited defensively where he's kind of going to have to only play the center. I don't think you can really play him at the four um, and have him on the perimeter much. And he's he's not a, a great athlete. So he works his butt off. He's going to rebound anything near him. And he's a really, really, really good passer for his position. I'm just not sure that his ceiling is high enough to warrant, you know, anything above, you know, pick 20. Let's talk next about Eve Pons and let's not talk about his offensive game at all. (laughs) The one thing that really interests me with him is I hope that somehow he ends up on the Denver Nuggets because he's such an exceptional fit alongside Nikola Jokic and covers up, you know, 
Jokic is not as bad of a defensive center as people sort of peg him to be, but he's also clearly not great at, you know, the rim protection stuff and certainly the moving his feet on the perimeter kind of stuff. But Pons is someone who can cover for a lot of mistakes, especially as a weak side help side blocker. And, you know, he can certainly rim run and throw down lobs with the best of them. And watching Nikola Jokic try and find him would be really, really fun. But I bring that up sort of as the early discussion point for him because he's someone that I think if he ends up on the right team in the right fit can be a really, really useful NBA player. But I think if he ends up going to a terrible team that is relying on him for some kind of offensive contribution, he could really bomb and end up being someone who kind of has to get like a redemption contract with his second team. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to sort of fit where think of where Pons fits into the sort of modern NBA defensive landscape. He's probably the best shot blocker in the country, him or Isaiah Jackson. But he's he's such a freak athlete, and you know when he he challenges at the rim, his chin is level with the rim. The his explosiveness is it's absurd, and he has incredible timing on his blocks. Um, you know, I I think as a stat earlier in the year is like through the first ten or fifteen games or something, the player that he was directly guarding only scored like seven points which is just an absurd stat um he he can switch somewhat on the perimeter but his shot blocking his explosiveness his athleticism are incredible um i I get a lot of brandon clark vibes from him um i i think brandon clark has better touch around the rim on his floaters and stuff offensively um i pons his he his shot is super ugly it's really one of the worst things you'll see but it's kind of been going in this year at a you know good enough rate i'm not sure how much if at all that translates if this is just kind of a fluke this year but he's shot it a little better than you know clark did i don't don't expect that to be you know a reliable skill in the nba but if he's, you know, good enough to knock down 35% from the corner or something, I, I think that'd be massive and I wouldn't be entirely shocked by it. You mentioned him. So let's now talk about Isaiah Jackson, who really had a great run in his last 10 games or so with Kentucky, but it wasn't enough for them to make the tournament. Ha ha ha. But he is very, very raw, but the tools are just ridiculous i mean he's 6'10 very skinny but the second best shot blocker in the country besides eve pons and you know jackson's a freshman so that's saying something i think he is someone who probably won't declare for the draft unless some team has made it very clear that he will be taken in the first round and it'll be interesting to sort of see what kentucky looks like on a more general level next season sort of whether or not he returns but He's got the athletic tools and the upside, but he's definitely going to be a project pick by whoever takes him unless he comes back to Kentucky next year and shows some serious development between his freshman season and his sophomore year. So I, I, I kind of feel like he's almost a lock to go out in the draft this year. Is I, I, It's ESPN or The Athletic or Bleacher Reports. Well, some of those have him as almost a fringe lottery guy. Um I his and I I could one hundred percent see 
teams just getting enamored with his athleticism and his quick twitch responsiveness um and just his length and ability to block shots is pretty astounding and he he can get a little jump happy um but the the biggest issue that i have with his game is his processing speed um on both ends of the floor he always seems to be you know a step or half a step behind you know what's happening he doesn't really anticipate what's going on or where he needs to be until it's kind of already happened he's just you know at enough of an athletic freak that he can make up for it um how much he's able to do that in the nba will you know taper some but you know with like you said with with coaching with the actual development program um and not you know a a college program that's on fire I, i i think a team could get an outstanding rim protector late in the first round all right, let's move on to the draft deep dives section where we talk about some players who probably will not hear their names called in the first round, although a couple of the guys that we're going to discuss have a pretty good shot at this point of hearing their name called within the first 30 picks. But I wanted to start with Usman Garuba, who has been someone who's been on the fringes of lottery consideration over the past couple of years. The problem is that his offensive game has just gone absolutely nowhere during his professional career thus far in Europe. And unlike with, say, Yves Pons, who's hit some shots and has gotten up this season to a 76% free throw shooter, Garuba is still at the 52% mark for his career in terms of free throw shooting. And granted, that's not the largest sample size in the world, but it tracks with his really troublesome lack of touch on pretty much any shots on the offensive end, honestly. But the thing with Garuba is that he's just such a special defensive player that as long as you can pair him with a center or power forward who has a more advanced offensive game, his defense is good enough that it might not end up mattering. Yeah, he He's in that same realm of defender as Pons and Jackson. Um, and, and his work rate, you know, probably ri- rivals that of Sharps. Um, on, on the defensive end, this dude just works so hard and makes a massive impact. Uh, but offensively, I, I when, when he dribbles, it looks like a toddler does when they first pick up a basketball. Um, it's super uncoordinated. He has no faith in it. Um, it. it it's just a turnover waiting to happen. I, I wouldn't trust him with the ball at all. I don't trust his shot. Um, and, you know, I, I could see him being one of those guys where, you know, a, t- a teammate, his teammate drives, defense collapses on him. He looks to kick it to him, realizes who's standing in the corner, pivots back and, you know, has to go a different direction because the last three times he's done that, it's either been a brick or a turnover. So, defensively he he could be a monster i'm just not sure that his offensive limitations will really ever allow him to you know really carve out time in a rotation to make that defensive impact and a player who's very very different from that i wanted to talk briefly about jeremiah robinson earl who had a really hot start to the season for villanova then cooled off very quickly and then missed a bunch of time But he did acquit himself quite well in Villanova's loss to Georgetown in the Big East tournament. 
and he'll have another chance to prove himself in the NCAA tournament. But the thing with Robinson Earl is, you know, after he sort of cooled down from his hot stretch at the start of the season, you know, he was missing shots. And if he's not, you know, pouring it in on the offensive end, he's not going to be more than an end of the bench kind of guy. But he has shown flashes, especially earlier in this season, that he could be a bigger part of an NBA rotation than that. So like all Villanova players, his basketball IQ is just through the roof. Um, you, you can immediately tell that he knows the game on both ends of the floor. He moves the ball well. He doesn't really make poor decisions offensively. He can switch on multiple players um, and, you know, makes all the rotations defensively. Um, and like you touched on, my biggest issue is that there are just stretches of games where he just completely disappears offensively and if his shot isn't falling then he just kind of stops taking them and his offensive impact just plummets because then defenses don't have to respect him out there and that completely closes off any driving lanes for him or cutting lanes for him to find teammates so if if he can't be a consistent shooter or at least a confident shooter and willing to take those shots I worry that all he kind of is is this really intelligent rotation guy um and you know if he ends up being a kyle anderson you know that that's not a bad career kyle anderson has had a good long career on some winning teams um but you know with robinson earl's you know iq and skills skill set I, I i'm hoping for a better outcome for him you mentioned the willingness to shoot and i think that's a really great point i mean you compare and this is going to be funny but jay crowder versus rajon rondo in Rajon Rondo's best seasons, he was in the high 30s and, you know, occasionally flirted with the low 40s in terms of three-point percentage, but it didn't really matter all that much for his team's spacing because everybody knew that he was only going to shoot if he was absolutely wide open and there was no easy assist that he could pass into. He was not going to take that shot from long range, whereas Jay Crowder has had a few years where he's been low 30s, even below 30% from three-point range, but he's going to fire away if he's open and the ball swings to him. And that is a lot more of a positive contribution to his team spacing because, you know, opposing players have to actually guard him out there as opposed to Rondo where they can say, yeah, okay, we'll wait like two seconds. And if you're still holding onto the ball, then maybe we'll make a lazy closeout. But we're not really going to be all that concerned about Rajon Rondo destroying us from three-point range. Whereas Crowder, you know, if he's going to shoot 13 times a game, then every once in a while he'll go nine for 13 and win a game on his own. And if Robinson Earl can be more like the Jay Crowder willingness to shoot mode than the Rajon Rondo willingness to shoot mode, I think that'll make a big difference for his career. Yeah, and, and if he isn't, it's a complete offensive killer when guys don't hit or at least take those open shots. You know, I... I feel like whenever you watch a guy, you watch a point guard, you know, penetrate the lane, make an awesome skip past an open shooter, and then they pass out of it. And you just see the body language on the other guys just deflate and it, it kills the offensive rhythm. And it makes those ball handlers, you know, second guess themselves when they make that pass because they know that it's not going to result in any chance of any points because the guy's just not going to take it. Up next, Alperin Sengun, who has climbed onto a number of first-round boards. He 
is currently first in the Turkish Super League in field goals, first in offensive rebounds, first in points, second in points per game, first in blocks, first in true shooting percentage, first in effective field goal percentage, second in total rebounds. And oh, did I mention that he's a 19-year-old playing in a professional league against, you know, professional players? And the one problem with Sengun is that he doesn't have a game that's immediately obviously translatable to the NBA. He's not, you know, a crazy stretch five type shooting bombs away from three point range. You know, he's not a ridiculous athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but it's really hard to deny the production that he's putting up as again, a 19 year old in one of the best professional basketball leagues in the world. My biggest issue with Sengun is, I mean, really just the fact that he's 6'9". Um, and he, he's an incredible post scorer. I love his footwork down there. Uh, really good touch around the rim. Um, you know, like you said, really good shot blocker, rebounder, all of that despite, you know, being a pretty below average athlete in my estimation or in, in my eyes. Um, he, he has really good instincts and reads the ball off the rim and off guys' hands really well and just has really good timing with all with all that stuff um my my issue with him is that he's six nine and i don't think you can play him anywhere but the center position and in all the film that i've gone through of his he hasn't played anyone that's actually or significantly bigger than him and i don't see him getting a lot of these post scores against you know seven foot defenders because they're going to be able to body him off the block and he doesn't have that shot where he can step back to the mid-range or even the three-point line um and punish defenses from out there if he if he did have that outside shot i i would be much higher on him but then defensively too he he kind of gets he's super inconsistent in the pick and roll um i think i think his team mostly plays drop coverage and his levels with the roller are all over the place, and if he's put on an island out on the perimeter, and the the ball handler can do pretty much whatever they want. So, my concern, if if he came along ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, I, I would absolutely love him and think he'd be a lock for the first round. And I'm I'm lower on him than most people. Um, I I'm just really worried that he doesn't have that athleticism and size or either one of them, uh, where he can really take advantage of opponents. I think that's fair. Really, where I sort of come out with this is that he has found a way to be very successful as a 19-year-old playing against grown men, and especially that he's found a way to be so incredibly valuable on the offensive glass, you know, as a 6'9 center and Granted, maybe he hasn't faced that many people who are bigger than him or more athletic than him in the Turkish Super League. But, I mean, given the production that he's put together, I think even with the athletic limitations, he has a pretty high floor. And granted, there are a lot of backup big man types in the NBA. But, you know, it's really hard for me to deny the fact that he has done so well in a professional league even though there are many reasons to be concerned about why that might not translate. I feel like at least 
some of his skill set will translate. And, you know, even if he's not a lead scorer as a 19-year-old type in the NBA, you know, I think he will find a way to be successful on an NBA court just because he's shown at a professional level that he can find a way to be really successful even with, you know, those limitations as a 6'9", pretty much pure center. And and he, we kind of touched on it with Mobley, too, and his feel or his overall feel for the game and Sengun absolutely has that and he's proven that he's a good uh passer out of the post and out of the short roll so you know maybe if he's offensively if he's put into more space as you know a screener and he can operate and kind of create for others um you know that'll certainly help and and you kind of mentioned it the first time around talking about him um but I he probably will be more of a project. He is only 19. So if that shot does come along, I, I, I think that will be absolutely massive for him. And finally, I wanted to close out by talking about Sandro Mamakalashvili out of Seton Hall, who is an incredibly confusing player. He's a seven-footer who's basically at his best as a guard. He hasn't run that many pick-and-roll possessions, but he's in the 99th percentile of pick-and-roll efficacy. And he's good off screens as well, but he's terrible on post-ups, he's terrible on isos, and he's pretty bad in transition. And he basically just shot on pretty much every play where he touched the ball for a mediocre Seton Hall team this year. But the reason I wanted to talk about him is that I think he has an incredibly high ceiling and an incredibly low floor. And if he hits that ceiling, he could be a really interesting NBA player. And, you know, maybe even a starter type who, you know, touches on the fringes of all-star consideration. But it's also very easy to see him flaming out in like one or two years after just being nailed to the end of a bench somewhere and getting like 20 NBA minutes before he flames out of the league. It it wouldn't surprise me if he's you know, averaging 18, 9, and 9 over in Europe in a couple of years. Um, but his game is it's fascinating. I mean, it's a completely different role this year than he played last year when they had Miles Powell. And, you know, the offense essentially ran entirely through Powell. Um, and this year it's run entirely through M- M- Mamo. Um, and he's a, essentially their point guard, um, especially with Bryce Aiken being injured all the time um I, I think he's a decent shooter i think he's fun in the open floor i th- I think he's a creative and willing passer um it's you know i i would like to think that in an nba rotation he tones a lot of that decision making and shot selection back and really plays more within himself and is that kind of utility big man who can be used in the open floor and help space the floor because when he is he's really talented um if he's not and he's out there taking every shot or taking a shot every time he gets his hands on the ball um you know he's going to be really inefficient he's going to be bad defensively uh he's going to be bad defensively regardless probably um and really frustrate his coach and probably see very limited minutes all right anything else you want to talk about today before we wrap things up um i think we kind of covered most of the important big men some french second rounders but meh who cares 
Any plugs? Uh, plugs. Uh, we got some stuff on hashtag basketball for the tournament. I think I have a bracket breakdown that will probably probably be published by the time you're listening. Um, and then I, th- I think we'll be kind of doing a, a Zach Lowe-esque 10 things uh, column after each round or at least each kind of weekend set of games. So keep an eye out for that. And then after the tournament, I'm hoping to have top a full top 75 draft guide published, but that we got a couple weeks for that. So yeah, that's it. And we will, of course, circle back to those tournament previews slash recaps once those are up and then start talking about the top 75 as we sort of go head on into draft season. But in the meantime, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And you can find his work on the hashtag basketball website, as well as over at Canis Hoopus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Still going strong alongside Tyler and a bunch of other great writers with the hashtag basketball NBA power rankings, as well as my work for Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Those are always much appreciated. And as always, thanks so much for listening.